0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee,
1: so without further ado, here he is.
0: This morning, I want to preach a message on a passage that is probably for many of you a very familiar text if you've grown up in the church. And it's a text in which some teachers of the law were trying to trap Jesus, and they, uh, they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave him his response, and he gave the two greatest commandments, which is to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. So the title of the message, very uncreatively, is The Greatest Commandments. Uh, I realized years ago that titling sermons is not my gift. And so I just figured, let's just be in full disclosure mode. on This is what it's about. And I'll explain why the the illustration chosen for this week is a person clinging to the base of the cross and what that has to do with the greatest commandments to love God, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Here's the text. It comes out of Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Word of God. And I know that for many of you, you've heard these words before. Maybe some of us have heard them in the context of premarital counseling or in countless other sermons. Uh, <clears throat> but it bears repeating again and again. If we preach this sermon every quarter for every year that our church was in existence, it wouldn't be too much. And you'll see, just based on this text, that at the heart of the Christian faith is a command to love. And if you have not understood that, if you have not gotten that down, whatever else you think has happened in you to call yourself a follower of Jesus, something's missing. At the heart of the Christian faith is a call to be loved and to love. There is no other commodity that is more important to the Christian faith than love. And so that's the premise of the message. And I want to start out just with a a little background. You want to watch a bunch of guys waste a whole day, maybe even longer? All you've got to do is play the who would win in a fight game. You guys know that game? Who would win in a fight? Jack Bauer or Jason Bourne? Who would win in a fight? The Incredible Hulk or Superman? Or who would win in a gang fight? Pirates or ninjas, and everybody's, and some of you, I've just completely lost you for the rest of the sermon. You're just gonna be like, I think ninjas for sure, maybe pirates. L- listen, why do we? Why do and you guys can black that out for now? Just dim the screen. We don't need to look at that anymore. Why does that obsess certain people so much? Well, you have to understand that it's not about the argument anymore. The reason that kind of argument or debate takes up a whole day is because it's a showcase for my knowledge and my gift of logic. It really doesn't matter who would win in a fight between pirates and ninjas because they will never fight, all right? You're like, yeah, maybe in your world. But they won't in any important world. But it's fun to talk about because it reveals how much uh, ninjology you have mastered and how tight your logic is. Ah, but the ninja sword is folded 18,000 times. And, and this is what we love. But, you know, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day were a lot like those guys. They loved debating things, and they loved debating things because it was a showcase for how much they knew and how clever their logic was. They really didn't care if ninjas and pirates don't even exist today. What they cared about was that in their constructs, they would win an argument, and everyone would bow their knees and say, You are the master. I am the student right? That's what it was all about. And so these rabbis would get together, and they would debate the law of Moses over and over and over. And they especially loved asking this question, which one of these is greater than the others? If there are so many laws, statutes in the the law of Moses, which ones are more important than all the others? And then they loved this question, is it possible? that in the heart of God, among all the commands he's given to human beings, there is one command that he cares about more than any other command. That if we could burrow ourselves into the brain of God and find out what does he care about the most, what is he most passionate or agitated about, what would that be? And they, they basically played around with this question for centuries. So you can imagine then, uh, how important the setting it was when Jesus, who is claiming to be the most authoritative teacher on the rise at that time, is there in town and they get a chance to ask him. You know, it's interesting when you go to a conference, you you get a speaker and you, you kind of get him in a corner We always want to ask them the question that's been burning a hole in our own minds. We have a well-formed opinion or conviction, but we just want to know what this expert thinks about. What's your take on this? And so they asked him, here's a question we rabbis have been debating for centuries. What do you say is the greatest commandment? Now, the Bible reveals that their main intention was to trap Jesus, to get him in some kind of violation of the theology of the Jews so that they can point him out as a heretic and dismiss him because he was seriously threatening their dominance as religious leaders. But you know what? In a, in a culture and a religion where there were 613 total statutes in their law, these are 613 requirements from God to us so that we would stand righteous before him. And, you know, out of those, there were 365 prohibitions. Let me show you that. You know, I'll, I'll get them and Let me first read the text. I, I hate just moving to the message without letting you see the original text. So let me read that first. But when the Pharisees heard that he had said, did I already read it for you? Okay. So, okay. So here we go. Where's that slide? 613 statutes in the law of Moses. 248 were positive, thou shalt. These are things you must do. Pause for a minute. Can you remember a list of 248 things that God expects of you on a regular basis? And then out of that, 365, and the intentional one for every day of the year where thou shalt nots. So how do you, in a, in a, in a religion where there are as many thou shalt nots as there are days in the year, this wasn't just an idle question. It really mattered to these people too. There's too many things God requires. Is there one thing which if we if we're going to get a bunch of stuff wrong, what's the one thing we cannot afford to get wrong? Right? And if you've ever been in an orientation for for work or if you've bought a new house, I remember when we bought a new house, the home inspector was taking us through and he said, "Look, there's this little dial on the on this main I don't even know what it's called. There's a a water line that comes through the house. And he says, don't ever turn it the other way. And he kept emphasizing, if you do, bad, bad things will happen in your house. Don't ever turn this the other way. And that's all I remember from that inspection. He said like a million things, but he scared me so badly about that one thing. I was like, I am never, I even remember saying to our kids, if you touch this, bad, bad things will happen to you, not just to our house. Right? Right? And so that's the heart of it, too. It's a valid question with so many things which God seems to care about and command of us. What is the one thing we cannot afford to get wrong? So the stage is set. The great teacher, Jesus, is right there in front of them. They pose to him a question that has been addling them for centuries, and he's about to give an answer. And here's the answer that he gives. He says, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, every religious leader hearing that knew exactly what he was quoting. He was quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, which is a part of something called the Shema, which is a confessional prayer which every devout Jew prays every morning and every evening by memory. This is a part of every single day's personal liturgy for the Jew. And so he knew exactly, they all knew exactly what he's referring to. The thing you repeat mechanically every single day out of religious duty, that is at the heart of the greatest thing which God commands of us. If we could listen to those things which we say over and over, we would get it. He's saying you have repeated with your own lips over 700 times every year exactly what is the most important thing to god and that is simply this love him with everything you've got in deuteronomy 6 4 to 5 the one thing that that um deuteronomy adds is with all your might okay not just with your heart soul and, and mind but all of your might or strength so there it is jesus anchors the greatest command in something that was so painfully, tediously familiar, and yet he's indicting them because he says, you know these things like they're mantras. You know them like the back of your hand, and yet your lives betray you. You say these things as though they're true, but your lives don't understand how central these things are to your relationship with God. And then uninvited, I mean, after all, this guy asked, what is the single greatest commandment? And Jesus goes, you ask me for one? This is a buy one, get one, free sale. There's another command just like it. And what he means by that is this one cannot be separated from the last one. I can't tell you to love God and pretend like this other one isn't close on its heels. Obviously, to love God with everything is the most important command. But the second one is this. You shall love your neighbor the way you love yourself unless you happen to hate yourself, and then love your neighbor better than that, right? But he's assuming everybody, like it or not, has some amount of healthy self-preservation or self-love, and he's saying that's the way we are to live, that the first thing is to love God, and if you love him, you can't live a life where you don't care about other people. If you've ever met someone who says, I really love God, but people I don't care for, then their love of God is horribly off. It is based on a deep misunderstanding of what it means to know God or to love God. And so Jesus even escalates it a little more. By the way, he's quoting Leviticus 19.18. He's not just making this stuff up. This is another one of the things that the rabbis, the teachers of the law, would recite and teach on a regular basis. So those two commands were already very prevalent in Jewish culture, but they, they had not really received the rightful first place in the hearts of people. And so Jesus is establishing it very directly. And then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I'm not going to break that down too deeply. All he really meant to say was, every religious truth you have ever learned is summarized in this. Love. Love God with everything you have. And love other people the way you know you should be loving them. One rabbi actually um, interpreting this, there was a Gentile who said, I will become a Jew if you can teach me the whole law while I'm standing on one leg. In other words, you don't have much time, buddy. Go. And here's what that rabbi said. Whatever you hate for yourself, don't do it to anybody else. The rest is commentary. And so that's the kind of summary statement they're looking for. This is what the entire faith is built on, is to love God and to love other people. I think here's another way of saying it. If you have a hard time loving people, if you've got stuff going on inside of you that has not been addressed by God, then your relationship with God has not hit the place it needs to yet. You're not done exploring him. You can't say been there, done that because you have not been there or done that if you are challenged to love him and to love other people. And there's some in this room who maybe you won't characterize yourself this way, but everyone close to you will say, yeah, love is not their thing, man. They really work hard. They're kind of funny. They're good at making money. But love, I don't know. That's not what they do. They're kind of grumpy. They're sort of selfish. They're, they're easily annoyed. And every time you're around them, you're like walking on eggshells, like, please don't be mad. Please don't be mad. If that's you... Something is missing, and I'm not saying this to indict you or criticize you, but to tell you, do you realize that you walked out before the movie was finished? You think you've seen the whole thing, but some unfinished work, in fact, a very massive unfinished work, lingers in your life. Because where we know God and receive his love, he begins to give us the capacity to love. And if you have not love, the Apostle Paul sums it up very nicely. He says, if you have not love, you might have excellence down pat. You might be a great rule follower, be a very diligent person. You might even have hands that are as morally clean as a human being can keep them. But if you don't know how to love God and love people, you have totally missed the boat. Apostle Paul even ends that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 with these words. You are nothing without love. And if you have not love, you gain nothing. There is no value to your Christianity if love is not one of the most prominent fruits of that faith happening in you. And I hope that that will upset and stir up something in us. If loving people has always been challenging to us, then the problem is not that you're surrounded by jerky people. I know that's the easy thing to believe is, man, if only I could have that guy's family, if only I could be surrounded by friends like that, then I'd be happy all the time. The problem is that I'm surrounded by people who are just horrible human beings. They bring out the worst in me. If you had my children, they're like demon spawn. You want to just kill them. And so if if I had your kids, of course, I'd be happy all the time. But my kids are. If I had your wife, your husband, it'd be easy to be a loving spouse. I know that in your mind you've convinced yourself the problem is everyone else. The problem is that other people don't permit you to be loving. They elicit out of you hatred and anger, but it is not them. The world will always be full of people who will provoke you. But Jesus said, I am greater than this world. If you have not learned to really love, and I'm I'm, I'm saying to be truly a loving human being, then there are still mountains yet to be climbed in your journey of knowing God. And I say that to encourage you, not to saddle you with guilt, to say, you know what, before you leave this place and go, i got to try to be more loving, I stink. Don't do that. Just realize somewhere in your journey towards God, there are rooms you haven't entered yet. And as you do, and with maybe some good guidance, God will start doing work in you that will unlock that capacity to be more loving. And I hope I've stated the case well enough that if you have not love, you have missed the whole point of the Christian faith. So what's the key then? Because let's say I'm convinced now that I stand ready to love God with everything I've got and to love other people the way I know I'm supposed to love them. If I stand ready to do that, one question remains, what does love look like? I mean, I'm ready to do it with everything but what is it that I'm going to do with everything? Here's another way to ask it. What does love look like as defined by God? Because I could love in my own way. And every one of us has our own way of loving. Some, for example, I was just joking around with a guy this morning that one of the ways guys love is when they've screwed up, they buy the automatic things that produce flowers, chocolate. You know, as if our, our wives are like Pavlovian dogs. here's flowers. Ooh, I'm not mad anymore. Flowers. You know, that's kind of a lazy response, isn't it? But that's what we do. We have these, these uh, habits of love. But what does it really look like to love the way God tells us to love? Well, here's an interesting observation. The word uh, for, in Hebrew for love is ahav. Ahav. I always remember that in seminary about ahav loved you. You know, it's, uh, in case you want to remember, I can't get that out of my head. Ahav loved you. And here's what that Hebrew word means. It carries the meaning of primarily an act of the mind and the will. A fierce determination to care for the welfare of someone else, despite my own feelings. Despite my own feelings. It's very closely related to the Greek word agape. And you know, in the Greek... There are several words for love. Philia is that kind of love that's more affection, like oh, I love the kids at harvest. I love squeezing their cheeks. They're so cute. That's filio love, right? Where it just there's an attraction and an adoration. There's eros. You know what kind of love that is, right? You know, woo-hoo, that kind of that naughty love. Well, you know, you know what I'm saying. In marriage is okay, but and then there is agape love, which is this noble selfless love. The love that does what is righteous no matter what it costs. It is love that does the right thing because doing that is its own reward and it identifies us with God. And so it is this kind of love which the Bible calls us to give to God and to other people with everything at our disposal. And you know, that's not so hard to understand, is it? Because what relationship is there on the earth? where you can do nothing, invest nothing, pour nothing of yourself, and see it flourish. In any relationship, if you want it to grow and flourish, you have to pour in everything you have, or it will just flatline. For love to grow, you can't just flirt with it. You can't dabble at it. When I was younger, I was a decent tennis player. In fact, if I, in my boasting, I would say I was a great tennis player when I was younger. Guess what, though? In the last, I don't know, two decades, I've just dabbled at tennis. I've flirted with it. I've gone every once in a while, mainly to hang out with guys, and that's exactly where I am with my golf game. I golf to be outside with friends, and the game itself is kind of fun, but I don't golf anywhere near enough to be disappointed with my game. For me to be mad about my swing, I'd have to be stupid, mentally deficient, because I'm not putting in anywhere near enough to deserve to be disappointed with it. And that's how relationships work. If you are not pouring everything of yourself in, you will always skate along on maintenance mode, and that relationship, I promise you, will start to die in your heart. And so God commands us rightly that in your relationship with him and with your fellow man, Unless you are fully engaged, pouring everything in, nothing left on the field, those relationships will slowly, over time, wither. You might think, no, no, my marriage is cool, it's fine. No, you don't realize your spouse's heart is shriveling because you have made something so low the new normal. You have both learned to live with something that should be unacceptable to people who understand what love is. And because you've accepted this is our little arrangement, I'm not totally happy, but what the heck, it could be worse. Do you know how many people live like that without realizing this biblical principle? There's no relationship on this earth you can engage in that will continue to flourish unless you pour everything of yourself, everything you've got into that relationship. Think about how many friends you had, your your posse in, in, in college. Remember back in those days when we used words like posse and crew? Remember all those guys you ran with? Guys, remember your boys back in those days? How many of them are you close with now? I had a group of friends. I had like seven groomsmen at my wedding. It was a big wedding because I couldn't leave out any one of these guys. They were to me like brothers. I see them now maybe once a year One of the guys I was closest to, I haven't seen in like five years. Now, historically, in my memory, I call them my closest friends. That's not really true anymore today. We have wonderful memories. We logged a lot of time together, but that was all yesterday. Today, when I think of my closest friends, they're all sitting in this room. You are the closest human beings on this earth to me outside of my immediate family because we're doing life together. We're pouring into each other the best that we have, and I really feel like you guys are my family. There are people I've known longer, but there aren't many people I'm pouring as much into as this family. And that's just the way it works. God escalates the game a little more by when he really emphasizes Love me and others, really, with all of it, all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, all of it. And in the past, when I preached this, maybe you're afraid of this now. He's like, oh, Lord, he's just now getting to the four things. In the past, I used to tediously, exhaustively cover all four aspects, one at a time, giving illustrations. I'm not going to do that today. Because I think the whole point of that verse is simply to say this. It's not like you're supposed to go, all right, how am I going to love you with my heart now? And then how am I going to love you with my mind now and my strength now? It's not like that because you're not four little pieces of pie all separated by membranes. It's to say that these are overlapping categories that reflect the totality of a human life. And so I will trust the Holy Spirit to guide you in the details of this. But basically the message is this. When you love... You love others and you love God with every faculty at your disposal. If you love God or others without thinking, what's it like to be in their shoes? How can I be a little better at this? How can I be more creative? What is it like for them to be going through that right now? What do they most need from me? Not what do I most feel like giving them? If you're not thinking, it's incomplete love. If you only have sentiments and thoughts and you don't have might and strength in it, it's not complete love. In other words, biblical love is all-encompassing, all-engaging, all-out love. Using everything God's invested in me, I will pour that right back out and love Him and love other people. That's pretty heavy. So where am I supposed to see a real picture of what that kind of love looks like? I believe that the most outstanding and ultimate picture of this kind of fully engaged love is demonstrated and exhibited for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know that just because I'm a trained pastor, but because God's word also tells us as much. Look at these verses. 1 John 3, 16 could not be clearer. This is how we know what love is. How many movies and songs have been written about what love is? Hadaway probably had the most honest one. Like, what is love, man? What is it? Baby, don't hurt me. What is love? That would be my last weird reference for the sermon. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That is a summary of all of it, what Romans 5 eight teaches us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, we smelled bad. We were far from him. Christ still died for us. There is no more compelling, beautiful picture of the kind of love which God has shown us in that, and that's the kind of love then we are to be guided by. When when we're setting out to love God and love other people, what should be our guides? Well, rather than thinking about four things, heart, soul, mind, strength, think two things, right? I want to give you two aspects of the love of Christ that really compel me. The first... Was I think about the love of Christ on the cross is that it was selfless, selfless. He gave up everything. He, in fact, gave up his whole life. So far in my life, I've given up things like maybe a future career, some earning potential, but really mostly boils down to money. The biggest things I've given away or given up in my love of God is money, material things. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be faced with the choice to give up my life. But the picture given to us is that the kind of love God calls for is love that is totally selfless to the absolute nth degree. I get so moved when I watch war movies and I see guys who say, you guys go ahead, I'll buy you 10 minutes. When you say, I'll buy you 10 minutes, what that means is I'm going to die, but I'll try to take as many of their bullets for as long as I can so you can run like 30 seconds ahead or whatever. That's what we're saying. When I see scenes like that, where a guy jumps on a grenade, where that moment where you don't have time to think about it, where you've got to make a flash decision, what will my life be worth? And the decision is it will be worth the lives of others. That is a profound moment for me. I think it pictures Jesus on the cross. This is what's missing in so many relationships, is selflessness. As a pastor, I hear from all these people at the lowest moments of their relationship, and every single time, the one common denominator is we have hard times getting over our own selfish view of things. We're so stuck on how I see the issue, I won't make room in my brain for your point of view to have any value because, hey, don't go there. This is how I see it. You're not going to change my mind. We make unilateral decisions like, I will never do this again. I will never say that again. I will never go there with you again. How dare we think we have the right to say we love someone and yet cling on to this self-centered way of pretending to love. I love these things. Don't take them away from me, honey. We say to people before we get married, listen, if we're going to be together, you got to not touch this, you got to not touch that, you got to not ever say this to me. Don't ever say nothing about my weight. And we, you know, I don't, I'm worried about my, my split ends. Don't you ever mention my dry, frizzy hair. I'll kill you. And, you know, so we, we put out all these warnings, this sort of informal prenuptial agreement. That's who we are. But on Christ's cross... What we see is love is selfless. It really does put other people first. And I'm going to challenge all of us right now. Think about the relationships that mean the most to you right now. I would guess that if that relationship or those relationships are having turbulence, at the heart of that trouble is a selfishness that still clings to your heart. I got my junk, my issues, my pain, my wounds, my point of view. And you can't make me leave that. That's the warm blanket I've always covered myself with. That's how I know who I am. Don't you dare touch it. The cross of Christ stands before you as this amazing example. That isn't what love looks like. I know your pain makes you want to go to that safe place. But that is not what love looks like. And any love pursued that way will never grow. It will never survive. It will never flourish. It will end the relationship. It's just a matter of time. Think about that. Even in our love relationship with God, have we been truly selfless towards God? Truly. Have we yielded our futures our self-entitlement to happiness and pleasure? Futures of our children. Have we really given everything up to Him? Here's another aspect of the love of Christ on the cross. It's gracious. It's gracious. I think graciousness here really means a generosity of spirit. Being quick to forgive. Slow to anger. I want you to think about right now, how many of you are married? Would you just raise your hands? And then how many of you are in a relationship? Keep your hands raised. I just want to see in this room how many people are attached to someone. Now, if that's you, I want you to think how it would revolutionize your relationship if you truly could be quick to forgive and slow to anger. you know, we're just not that way. We are very self-righteous creatures, we human beings. We believe that all of our bad flaws are the result of pain because of other people's flaws. We walk around feeling that we're the victim even while we go around victimizing other people all the time. We blame our parents while we are destroying the lives of our own children. That's what we do. That is how we're made, isn't it? And God says, no, Real love isn't like that. And if you're slow to forgive and quick to anger, I promise you this that relationship you're in has no future. The best possible outcome is sleeping in separate bedrooms and staying together for the children. That's your best hope for the future. Because love like that cannot flourish. Love that flourishes is the love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross, which is gracious, patient, giving more than someone deserves. Giving more than someone deserves. And so as we set out to love God with everything we have and love others as we love ourselves, those two principles from the the love of Christ on the cross should be our guide. That we should love selflessly and sacrificially. And that we should love graciously and patiently. Now I know that's real churchy language, and some of you are already falling asleep, like we all heard this before, but let it sink in. Do you realize that the person sitting next to you is probably going, God, I hope they really hear it this time? Because they probably think that this is for me. How twisted. And if that's the thought in your your mind, then it is for you. You are the person for whom God put this message in my brain. Selfish love and ungracious love is love that is counterfeit and will never flourish. But love that grows is selfless and is gracious. And so I want to give you two things to remember. Selflessness and graciousness. And I want to end my message with two stories that happened to me this week with people in this church that really illustrate for me what love looks like set in motion. Two stories that have really touched my heart in the last couple weeks. The first is a story of one of our seeds teachers. And I won't tell you who it is, but I will tell you it is a he. And he wrote an email to Jeannie that she just had to share with me. And the subject line of the email was, my seeds commitment. And Jeannie, I remember her confessing, the minute she read that subject line, she got depressed. She's like, oh, another one's quitting. Because, you know, when you start with my seeds commitment, usually the next line is, is over, right? <laughs> she's, she's had such high turnover. She's just waiting for someone to, to be whatever, moving on. I'm a little, I need a break. But she read on, and you know what this person said in their email? I'm doing a lot of thinking about seeds, and I want to escalate my commitment. I want to add another quarter to my term of service in the children's ministry. And here's what blessed us the most. It's not just that we are looking for workers. I mean, that was great that he's willing. But here's what I think really blew us away was that there was so much thoughtfulness behind it. He had thought about what it's like to be in Jeannie's shoes and what's going on with the whole ministry. He said, this person's leaving. They're moving on to another ministry. These people are shifting classes. And it leaves this big gap in this area of our ministry. And I don't know who's going to cover that, but I want to be the one to stand in there and fill that gap up. I want to take that spot because I know that if somebody doesn't, it's just going to be this big gaping hole in our ministry, and our kids deserve better, so I want to add an extra commitment. And that's the kind of thing the seeds director would usually think about and would try to manipulate, come on, I need somebody here. But this guy was thinking on his own about it. I think that was the deepest blessing, was that he cares so deeply. And then he finished the email by saying, this decision is the culmination of a growing passion to see the next generation raised up in the instruction and the grace of our Lord Jesus. I read that email in my office, and uh, I came as close to crying as I have in a while. It bowled me over. That email just made my year. And it was because there was this bringing of the totality of himself to this task. And God had done so much. He had loved so much before he sent that email. And I'm not isolating this one story as though there are no other stories. But let me tell you, this is one of the things that makes me so proud to be at this church. Is that so many of you love God already like that. I hope that that will be the standard we set as a picture of what love towards God and others looks like. Let me give you one last story. <clears throat> Any of you who've been to my house? How many of you have been inside our house? You, you've seen our dining room set, right? Um, it's seen better days. One of our chairs was being held together by a ribbon that used to be the waistcoat of one of my daughter's Snow White costumes, because the legs were splaying out and the middle bar was broken. So, I would always be the one who would have to sit on the, the special chair when we had guests, because we didn't want to get a lawsuit as somebody crashed down. So, it had seen better days. But the table was still too good to just throw away, right? And chairs are expensive. So we just kind of kept it, and we're like, well, you know, we hardly use it when we entertain. So we just hung on to it. But it was one of the big um, dissatisfactions in our home. And recently, somebody in our church, good friends of ours, found out that there was a family who was looking to unload a, a dining room set that was in great shape, was very special to them, but it was time for them to let go of it. And they immediately thought of us, I'm so grateful for that, probably because they had sat at our dining table and had mercy and pity on us. But also, you know what, because friends always think of each other. You know, and in the process, they connected our family to another family that has a powerful and beautiful story. And we're really looking forward to meeting this family in person this summer enjoying a meal and hearing that story from their own lips. And what's more, it wasn't just that they brokered a deal, but this, fr- this, this family packed up all the furniture in their car, and a friend brought their truck, and, and these guys delivered it to our house. They drove a great distance. They did most of the work carrying the stuff in. Uh, you know how it is when you have people helping you move. You're actually just supervising. Why don't you just carry it in there? It goes here. I felt really guilty because I did almost nothing. And when it was all done, it fit perfectly. It looked—it just beautifies our home. And it is still today it's such a blessing every time I look at that table because of what it represents. I thought, whenever I look at that table, here's what I'm going to remember. Love has legs. It has hands and feet. And the week after I received that table, our old dining set, we didn't want to just throw it away because, like I said, it's still too good to just toss and so... We put out the word to the community resource center. Does anyone want it? And the family was excited to get it. So Pastor Jared and I loaded up my old set in a truck. And it turned out that they lived on the third floor, which is okay. But again... At the, at the moment when somebody wanted it, I was like, oh, that's great. We wanted to give it away. Now someone's going to be blessed with it. And right there was where it kind of ended for me. I'm like, that's such a beautiful story. But then I was remem- re- reminded, the story doesn't end there. Someone's got to haul this stuff over. They've got to carry it in. And as we were sweating with that stuff, I was thinking, this is what love should feel like. It should ache your muscles a little. There should be the inconvenience of doors that don't stay propped open and people who live on the third floor. And you know, it's right that it's that way. And I hope that for, the, for us, the way that we love will always be energized by God to attain that escape velocity where we say, man, I, I just, I'm too tired. I really don't want to be bothered with this. And here's an encouraging verse for you. Now that Jesus on the cross has set the gold standard, it is not up to us to jump up and reach it on our own. Romans 5.5 5 says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that encouraging? That it is not a love you generate, but one you receive by begging for it, by, by gazing at the cross, by inviting the Holy Spirit into your life. The love of God that's like that is literally poured. And when we talk about pouring, you have a passive vessel and something coming into you. All we do is receive it, and then we flow it back out. And so I want to encourage you with this. As you leave here this morning... The thing to remember is not, boy, I need to be more loving. But it is to to, to say this, I need to gaze at and meditate on the love of God displayed on that cross. And then I need to ask the Holy Spirit to really come into my life and pour the love of God in there so that it will flow out of me. You can't make yourself more loving, but God's agenda is to make you more loving. If you get out of his way and yield to him, he will actually do it. And here's the thing. The people around you, if you have the courage to ask, will say, there's something different about you. You are more patient, more caring, more considerate than I've ever remembered you. And it's more fun to be around you than it's ever been. You make life better by loving me. Wouldn't that be a powerful testimony to hear someday? I'm going to invite you to bow with me in prayer. I think, actually, that we have a very loving church. There are a few pastors in America more proud of their church than I am. But I also know that in pockets here or there, there are relationships sorely troubled right now because love is not flourishing. And I know that for many of us, we've walked with God so long, we've kind of forgotten that actually. We're commanded to love him too. And I wonder then if we could just reflect this way. Reflect on the way that you love God. Is it with this total investment? Have you loved God that way just generously, selflessly? Have you loved him with everything you've got? Is that what your life is? Is an expression of that all-in love for him? Then I'd also like you to reflect on whether you really love the people closest to you the way Jesus loved us on the cross. And as you reflect, here's what I want you to. don't do a lot of talking to God this morning. The band is going to play a little bit, but be in a listening mode. As you reflect on those things, I think that this morning the Holy Spirit is going to say words to your heart if you're listening. That will guide you, that will chasten you or encourage you just as your heart needs. He wants to make you more loving. He's intending to do it. So just listen, open your heart. Let's do that right now for a few
1: minutes as the band plays quietly and then Lord. Sometimes in our hearts we might feel like we're we're giving you all we have. We we're we're loving the best we know how to, and, and even then it sometimes mm-hmm. doesn't feel like it's enough. But, Lord, we ask that we can be reminded over and over again the truth of the gospel message and the love that you showed us and remembering how you gave it all, Lord, that that would resonate in our own hearts so we would have a greater capacity to love both you and our fellow brother and sister, Lord. And we pray, God, that... Uh, when we do fall short and we will Lord that we would always be able to come back to you and your grace would cover us once again and when others wrong us as well God that we wouldn't in, in, that instead of pointing the finger at them God we would understand in, in that grace that mercy that we, we have received so freely so generously and, and through your power be able to extend that to them as well Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for today. We want to honor you both in our hearts, with our actions, in our words. We love you, Lord.
0: Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.